Hello, this is Randy Starkey, pastor of Mariposa Baptist Church. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to another message from the Word of God. We hope that it will be a challenge and encouragement to you. If you are not a part of a local church, we would love to have you come and gather with us. We meet together every Sunday morning at 9.30 for Bible study and 10.30 for our worship service. We also meet again on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock for prayer and Bible study together. Again, we would love to have you come and join together with our body of believers to grow in your faith. We are located at 1251 Mariposa Road, Stanley, North Carolina, zip code 28164. Again, that's 1251 Mariposa Road, Stanley, North Carolina. You can also go to our website to find out more information at www.mariposabc.org. And now, a message from God's Word. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts in chapter 1. I'm going to read the first five verses this morning as we start, although we've kind of started, but more formally began our journey through the book of Acts. Luke, who is the author of the book, writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Our Father, it is our desire in these next few moments that, that you would speak. And Father, it's as we say those words or make that request, even that itself seems a little bit odd because we've just read your word and we know that you have spoken uh, through this, your revelation, but we also know that in order for us to, to understand more, to know you more, it requires the work of the Spirit in our hearts. And so as we consider this, your word, we ask that you would illuminate our hearts and minds, that we might hear and see and understand, not merely uh, from a human perspective, but Father, that we would hear and understand and see that which can only be so by the means of the Spirit that you have given to us. So, Father, by that Spirit, we ask this morning that you would operate within our hearts, move our wills, change our minds, and conform us to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Two weeks ago, I began... Uh, an introduction to the book of Acts by really just kind of doing a, uh, a survey. And if you were here, then you remember in that survey, as I asked the question, basically in the title, that message was Bury or Build. And we went through the book of Acts just 
sporadically with text, first of all, from a perspective of circumstance. And then, for all practical purposes, from a human perspective, looking at the contents of the book of Acts, just on a circumstantial level, we would likely conclude that all is lost. There would be no hope. There was death. There was suffering. Some of that suffering was brought about uh, from the outside world. Some of that was brought about by the religious crowds surrounding the church, the newly formed and forming church. And some of that was from within the church itself, amongst those who were claiming themselves to be a part of it. We see that circumstantially. It just doesn't go well. In the beginning, we see um, division amongst the believers. We see deception by those who profess faith in Ananias and Sapphira. We saw persecution that came from the outside that ultimately changed uh, later. And even after that, we saw disagreements between Paul and Barnabas, between Paul and Peter, and again, more suffering and more death, circumstantially. And all that together just paints this picture of, of, well, not a great outlook for what was going on or what Jesus did during His life or what He stood for. But then we went back through the book and, again, sporadic sections and verses and looked at another side, a side for which Luke writes this book. And it is interesting that as Luke records these things through his eyewitness accounts and, and gathering and partly because of his own personal involvement, he records them under the inspiration of the Spirit of God for people like us, for everyone that's lived from that time till now and everyone that will live as a word, as God's word to us to remind us of, well, many things, but most certainly one very central thing. And we see in the midst of the working out of these things, that if it were left to the, the, the intelligence or the ability of man, that not a lot would happen. In fact, there would probably be failure in the end. But that's not the case, and we know that. Why? Because you and I are sitting here this morning, almost 2,000 years later from the, the first penning of these words, being guided by this very word. And it was because of something outside of human invention and intelligence and ability that changes it all. And it's to that that Luke turns our attention this morning, and obviously throughout the entirety of this book. But what we need to be reminded of as we think about these things, as we're going through the entirety of this book, is that um, at the end of the day, this isn't about how smart we are. It's not about how good we are. While those things are good things and we want to pursue and are responsible, it is about the power of God at work within us that makes all the difference, something that we must rest firmly upon. God works in us and through us, and yes, even in spite of us, to bring about all his purposes. And so Paul, or Luke, excuse me, introduces uh, this next 
portion or episode that he records. He wrote the book of Luke, and then he followed it with this book. And so he begins in that fashion. In the first book, referring to Luke, old Theophilus, and if you'll go back to the beginning of Luke, you'll find a reference there to Theophilus as Luke had this, this in mind. Theophilus simply means God-lover. So whether or not it was an individual, as it's capitalized in our text, so we assume that, or whether it was uh, something that was uh, merely uh, representative of a group or several people, or a reference to every person who was represented by this, I, I don't know. But nevertheless, he writes, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So, i.e., if you want to know about what Jesus began to do and teach, then you go back and you read, well, not only Luke, but the Gospels. The Gospels reveal to us the, the work of Christ, the purpose of God through Him. Well, as we walk through this text, what we will find out is it's kind of laid out in on, on a timeline as Luke introduces this. It's about that which is, happens before, that which what, that happens after, and that which happens during. Now, we'll see that because he's referencing several particular events. And this first one is that he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until, or before, the day when he was taken up. Which begs the question for us for a moment, what exactly is it that Jesus began to do and teach? But more than that, there's something that stands out to me as I began to read this book, even knowing what's coming, is that particular word, all that Jesus began. It's interesting to know that while upon the cross, yes, Jesus absolutely said it and he meant it in a particular way when he said, it is finished, while he was referring to everything necessary for the work of salvation, that is that unrighteous, sinful human beings, rebels against God, could be reconciled to God. That work was finished, but the work of Christ ultimately was not complete. In salvation, yes, it was. Nothing left to be done, but God, nevertheless, was still working on a plan. What follows was not accidental. It's not coincidental in any way. And Luke reminds us of that, all that Jesus began to do and to teach. The story was not over. In fact, it's not over today. How do I know that? Well, because we're still here. God is still at work in the midst of His people today. And it's an encouraging fact to know each day that comes that it's not done, that God is still at work. No matter what the circumstances surrounding us are, whether we're walking on the mountaintop, whether we're walking in the valley, God is still working. And for that, we are encouraged by scriptures that remind us that God's mercies are new every morning and that every day, with every day, comes renewal, forgiveness, and yes, the presence of God with His people doing His great work that He purposed from before the foundation of the world. And that is true in our midst today. But Luke references all that he began to do and to teach. He subsumes everything under those two ideas, what Jesus did. We need to begin there because, you know, you remember the old uh, fad, what would Jesus do? Obviously, I don't want to like disintegrate that, but really a better question 
The place to start is not what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus, or what Jesus did particularly, not would or what did He do. Because that's where we need to begin. We need to know. And that's why Luke references the fact that he's written a prior work in the first book, which details for us the things that Jesus did. Why is this important? Well, it's important for a number of reasons. Because, well, what, where I began, because what Jesus did was he did, in fact, complete something that was significant. He did complete the work of salvation. He revealed to us through his, his life who he was. And that is not just a a spurious question. It's a question that requires a specific answer. Who was Jesus? He was God in the flesh, God with us, God Himself. He was, therefore, perfect in all that He did. He never sinned. He lived a righteous life. That's what He did. Because everything He did is, is significant and essential to who we are, and what we pursue today. So we began with what Jesus did, everything that Jesus began to do. And then, of course, he adds to that and to teach, which is a reminder to us that the Christian life that we live today is not a life to just of feelings. And, and feelings are good. I love feelings most of the time, some of the time. They're a gift from God. And especially, I guess I need to touch on feelings today, right? I'm supposed to, because it's It's Valentine's Day. But everybody knows that real love is not just a... I don't want to circumvent that because it feels good, right? You remember when you first met husbands and wives? You remember the feelings that you felt? You weren't thinking, you were feeling, and it felt good. So feelings aren't bad, but... You didn't make all the decisions that you made and the decisions, hopefully, to spend your life with that person based on those feelings. You thought. You made decisions. So love is more than just a feeling. In fact, I'm reminded often and remind myself often and remind others often, especially when it deals with marriage counseling, that love while we desire those feelings, you will find that if you will be faithful to do the things that you are responsible to do in your relationship, that eventually those feelings will indeed follow. So, we're able to say that, that I love my wife or, my, or your husband, but there are times where you might not feel like that, right? Don't admit it today. But even in those times, Chris was looking at you, Wayne, just in case she was wondering. But even in those times, it's not that you don't love. You still have great opportunity to love by doing that which is right. So I say all that to say that when Luke reminds us that everything that Jesus did and taught, we need to be reminded that the Christian life is, is something that requires our engagement in a mindful way. It's not just about our feelings. Yes, we desire and we want feelings, good feelings most certainly. We want to feel like we're a Christian. We want to feel the presence of God. But here's the reality. Whether you feel the presence of God or not, believer, He's with you. Know that. That's a truth that's been taught 
So there are certain things that we know that Christ has taught us. And implied in that word, everything that Jesus began to do and to teach, what comes out of that, which will come out in just a moment in the word, and that is the idea of commands. Because included in that teaching are commands. And we could go immediately to Matthew 28 and think about the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And he says, therefore, he's given us a command, go, therefore, and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, right? And he tells you to teach everything that I have commanded you. So these go hand in hand. So we start here with the gospel, what Jesus did and what he taught. But we're also encouraged that that was just the beginning. The story was not complete. So Luke goes on, and he specifically says everything that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up. And then notice the next thing. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So now we go to the before, but the after he had given commands. So he was taken up or he ascended to the throne after he accomplished something else. And that was that he would command them. But what I want to highlight this morning is the means by which this command comes. And it's a curious idea. He says the commands through the Holy Spirit. Because it, for me, at least, it raises some things to make me think about. Because we don't often think about the work of the Holy Spirit when Jesus was standing in front of them, do we? We always we separate. And the way we conceive of what we call the Trinity is not always accurate because of our finite minds. We think of, obviously, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and unfortunately, and we don't want to promote this, we often think about these ideas almost in a heretical way. I don't know that how we stop doing that other than remind ourselves the truth, but what I mean by that is we want to separate almost the Father is kind of what was operative in the Old Testament. And then during the Gospels, we see Jesus doing something, and then the Holy Spirit. We almost, in a sense, promote what's called modalism, and we don't want to promote that because of our lack of ability of understanding. But we see here that even when Christ was, was on the earth still, that there was a work by means of the Holy Spirit. We know when we go to the Old Testament that, that while God the Father was, was speaking through the prophets, we see references and we see numerous times in which the Spirit was at work. But it's difficult for us to try to figure out how we're supposed to think about these things. But I would say it's important for us to at least think about these things. And God's Spirit has been, is, and always will be the means by which God oper operates and opens blind eyes. This is what's happening. It's what has happened. Even in the Old Testament, it was the Spirit of God that was at work in the hearts of God's people. If we go back to the Old Testament, we find that God's Spirit dwelled with His people, right? We read it in the very beginning with Moses and the, the tent and the tabernacle, that the Spirit of God would come down. And then later in the building of the temple, we saw that the Spirit of God and the glory of God fills the temple. But then when we turn to the New Testament, we find that, that God's dwelling was, it seems different to us, and it is different in, in a real way. God hadn't changed anything, but nevertheless, God now dwelt with man in the person of Christ. But even in that, we see a reminder of how God is at work, the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, when we enter into the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right? 
Jesus goes down to the Jordan River before John, and John baptizes him. And then what do, are, are we told at that point? As he came up out of the water, the voice of God, in this sense, the Father, says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then we're told that the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. And so we're reminded that these, these three persons of the Trinity, as has always been the case, are operating in complete unity. So the Spirit of God was at work even in the midst of the life of Christ. And we're reminded of something that we'll, we'll reference later, the Spirit of God led Christ into the wilderness where he, His ministry essentially began. And then, of course, we're told by Jesus Himself that when He left, another would come, a helper, a comforter. In John 14, he said it this way, But the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, I say all those things just to remind us and make us think about those realities of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit who have always been working. And by the way, just in case it's missed, while Jesus took on the Son of God, took on flesh in the New Testament, the Son didn't come into existence When Jesus was born, the Son is eternal with the Father. We talked about that last week as we looked through the Athanasius Creed. But there is a marked difference, at least I believe is pointed out to us in the New Testament text as we think about the work of the Spirit. You say, well, what's the difference in how the Spirit was at work in the Old Testament before the, 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 the work of salvation was complete? They were saved the same way. God's people were God's people, His true people, by the same means, through faith. We see that. We go back, read Abraham. What? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. His faith was, uh, his relationship with God was based on faith. That's never changed. The work of the Spirit, was it at work in the Old Testament, in the hearts of rebels just like us, sinners, to change hearts? In fact, we see many references to that reality especially as we get into the latter prophets. Ezekiel spoke of that in many ways. But most notably, they were pointing forward to something that was going to happen through the working of God's Spirit that was, at least from a human perspective, was going to be notably different. And so that brings me to what's different. If the Spirit was present when Jesus was commanding the disciples, the apostles, prior to His ascension, what was going to be different? Because we're getting ready to get there. Not today, but later as we see what happens the promise that is spoken of as it comes. And here's the one thing I can say with certainty. Now, there may be other things that you can say, well, I think it was this and I think it was this, but here's what's clear in Scripture. It's declared by Peter in Acts chapter 2 as he quotes an Old Testament prophet, Joel, and he says, in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit, and here it is, on all flesh. You say, well, what was different in the work of the Spirit in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Well, that one is for certain. God was working through His people in the Old Testament, which are identified. And again, go back and, and, and read your Old Testaments through that and see how the Spirit is coming upon and working through people. They are Israelites. It was God's plan to work through the Israelites to expand to the ends of the earth His glory in the Old Testament, but it was through a particular people that He called His people. 
But what is markedly different as we move into the, the completion of salvation and Jesus' resurrection and His ascension ultimately is that now the declaration is that the Spirit of God would not just work through one people, but in all. This is good news for you. I don't, I don't know. I could be wrong if, if, whether or not we have any uh, Israelites here. But if it weren't for this marked difference then we would be here absent of the presence of the Spirit in us. This is the marked difference. And, and, and I go there. Now, again, that's not all necessarily there is. We could dive in, and, but I can say that with certainty. That was the promise and the clarification that's coming in Acts 2, that God in the latter days, which is the days after the completion of salvation, the coming of Christ, that God's Spirit would be upon all. Now, all flesh is not a reference to every single human being. But the point here is not just Israelites, but all peoples. And of course, we're taught later and through other ways that that's distinguished between the followers of Christ. So he commands them through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is still at work. In fact, if we go back and we look back at the passage that Shane read earlier as the, on the Emmaus Road, and it says that he broke the bread and their eyes were open. It doesn't say it there, but... It was by the power and the work of the Spirit that their eyes were opened. That's what the Spirit does. He takes dead people and He breathes life into them. And when He does, then they believe. There's faith. And so we're grateful that the Spirit has, is, and will always be operating. So Luke references the commands that are given through the Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, I don't want to spend a great deal here, a time here, but the question does come to, to, to mind, you know, when he says to the apostles, who is he speaking of? Now, there's a, there's a lot of debating amongst some people, not, I don't think there is here, about who the apostles were. It is my position that this is a distinct group of people. There are no present-day apostles. And as we read the text of Scripture, while it may be hard for us to define exactly what that, that is or why that is, it becomes very clear that this apostolic, apostolic role was something that was, is a past, that it had a purpose, and then through that role of these particular people whom God specifically chose, that everything that we now seek to do and live out that we call uh, uh, in, in the church as believers, is based upon those facts. One of the things, and I'm not going to go through this argument, but one of the things that I think of when I think about, well, when he's talking about apostles, is that settled? Is that just like a fixed group? And I'd say, yeah, I think it was pretty settled by the time you get just into Acts a few chapters. Because we find that the, the believers who are now in the early days of what we call the church, as that's being established, what that is, we find that they continued in the apostles' doctrine. Now, that's an important statement, at least to me. And if we, if we would then argue that the apostolic role is continuing today, well, that would then argue that that doctrine is still developing, that it's still able to, to come new stuff to us. And I don't think that's the case, and I think Scripture becomes very clear about that. This is a pastime thing. And it's to these particular people whom God chose for a task, a task that was set before the foundation of the world that that Jesus would continue the gospel ministry through human flesh, not alone, 
That's the big game changer, but it would be through particular people. In fact, we find later that Paul writes to us and helps us to, to further understand that. In Ephesians chapter 4, he reminds us, and he gives some distinguishing uh, groups of people. As he talks about the work of the Spirit giving gifts, or Jesus being resurrected, giving gifts to the church, and he, he then lists as those gifts, he says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. And he did so in order to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building of the body. Now, it doesn't tell you, well, apostles is past, but it's a distinct group of people defined very distinctly. But in Ephesians 2, backing up, Paul had already said this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, again, I don't want to stretch Scripture in any direction, but I don't know how many people want to build their house on a foundation that is constantly and forever changing. Any builders here? If you have a foundation that's constantly changing, matter of fact, if you've had an old house and the foundation changed, that's not a good thing, is it? It usually costs you a lot of money. I don't know, it's a, a simple illustration, but, you, but it works. This foundation is set. The foundation of the apostles and the prophets, that's done. And now we, distinctly from them, are being built upon that. And it goes on and says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, and this is in referencing to the church, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then, of course, as he clarifies the apostles whom he had chosen, well, that's a concept we could talk about at great length, but for the sake of this morning, the point I want to make is simply this. This was not any coincidences. This was not something that God was figuring out along the way. We've we have affirmed this recently that God's decrees were clear from before the foundation of the world. We can't comprehend all that's contained in that, but it was set and God was merely working out what He had already determined to do. The choosing of these apostles for the particular work that they would do, of which Luke will now help us to understand in the building of that foundation for the purpose of the building up of the church for whom Christ died. Luke goes on. He says, as he made these commands to the Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen, he says, now to them, that is to the apostles, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs. Now again, Luke's reminding us of some things. He's not filling in all the gaps, but he raises Christ's suffering. We understand the significance of that, the, the death, the burial of Christ. And we're absolutely necessary. But after that suffering... Luke reminds us that he presented himself alive. So while we are focusing in this book as Paul, as Luke, I keep saying Paul, but as Luke seeks to help us understand the, the one thing that is at, in operation in the midst of our lives that's going to make all the difference, he, he wants us to understand that is something that flows from this essential reality that Christ himself suffered but that he didn't stay dead. He was alive. And he appeared to them, it says, by many proofs. 
Now, we could go back and read in the Gospels and, and Corinthians some of those things that would fall into the area of proofs that it was a reality. It was provable that Christ was alive. It wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't some uh, conspiracy theory. But by many proofs, he proved himself to be alive. And then notice what it says, then appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, this is important, I think, because this becomes the very catalyst for which everything flows out of. This is what Jesus taught. He taught about the kingdom of God. Now, what is the kingdom of God is a valid question for us to, to try to understand. And we've talked about this at length in days past, but I'll remind you of that. But before I do that, I want to notate one thing I think is interesting. I can't say a whole lot about it. But I find it interesting that in a number of places, not only here, but in others, that it is very specific that Jesus appeared to them for 40 days. Now, I don't want to make too much of numbers, but I also know that the Bible often uses numbers to draw some connections and correlations. Re remember where Jesus' ministry began? The Spirit led him into the wilderness for how long? 40 days. Now, again, he was in isolation, being tempted, and it was an expression of the proving of who he was for the purpose of what he was going to do for 40 days. Now, we, we do all kinds of things. Right? Maybe why 40 days? Well, maybe it was a, a day for every year of the children of Israel in the wilderness because that was for 40 years. And we make correlations, and we have to be careful about that, but I think there's probably intended to be some connections drawn here. So, Jesus' ministry began with 40 days of, of testing to prove Himself, and now He closes out His time here on the earth with 40 days of proof. Now, make of that what you will. I don't know what to make of that, and I don't want to make too much, but I most certainly think there's some conclusions to be drawn as far as the beginning and the conclusion of the ministry of the Son of God on the earth. But the most general way we could say his preaching or his goal was to proclaim the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? Well, it doesn't tell us here in the text. Now, we could go back to the Gospels and read, and I'll mention a couple. But it still doesn't clarify just succinctly, well, this is the kingdom of God. So let me provide you something. Now, understandably, this is extra biblical. So you can't just build all your truth on it. But I think it's a helpful way to understand the kingdom of God. And that's a reminder to most of you who have been here, and that is that the kingdom of God is God's people dwelling in God's place, enjoying God's rule and blessing. So what Jesus was teaching or in His life and what the Holy Spirit would continue to teach was, was about this, the kingdom of God, about being God's people. Now understand that being God's people is not the sentiment that sometimes people would say, we're all God's children. We're all God's creation, but we are not all God's children or God's people. John 1 clarifies that, right? He came to his own, but his own would not receive him. But to them who received him, he gave them the power to become the children of God. To those who believed on his name. So who are the children or the people of God? Those who believe on the name of Jesus. So the kingdom of God, first and foremost, begins with that. Who are God's people? I think that's probably why. 
If we go back to Mark 1 and read how he introduces it, he says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, and he says, the gospel of God. There's another one of those words, the good news of God. What is that? Well, he tells us, because here's what he was saying. Quote, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the kingdom of God in all its 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 hugeness as far as our comprehension of it, it most certainly has something to do at the very beginning of who God's people are. The kingdom of God entails the people of God, God's people who are defined by believing on His name, who have therefore repented and believed in the gospel. This was the message of Christ and would continue to be the very thing that would be taught and proclaimed by the apostles and by the church. But the, God's people in God's place. Well, I don't want to preach a whole other sermon, but re- reminded that in God's creation, in the very beginning, He, he designed a place for His people, and they lived in, in great blessing with God until they rebelled and were cast out. And we see pictures of this throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament, God's people in God's place. And the question then is, so what is that place now? Because it was Eden. That didn't work out too well. Then it was the promised land. That didn't work out real well. So what is that place now? Well, as Luke is going to teach us through the book of Acts, the interim, we could say, place for God's people to dwell is the church. And this is why, you know, when people like preachers talk about why people need to be in church, it's not just because we want to get more people. Well, yeah, we do. I told Beth this morning. It's like when you think about, well, what do we want? Well, I'll tell you. I told Beth what I want. I want these pews filled. There's plenty of open spots for people. We want people. Not because we just want to be able to say, this is how many people, but we want people because they, they represent God's work and they enable God's work about the kingdom of God. But God's people dwelling in God's place is the church today. So, you know, that question that people say, well, do you have to go to church to be a Christian? Well, I guess the hard, fast answer is no, because going to church doesn't make you a Christian. But to separate those two ideas would be unbiblical, and the Bible doesn't have a concept for that. To be a believer is to dwell in God's place, which is a gathered people. And yes, as as Acts will teach us, that is defined by God and by God's providence to particular groups of people in particular places, the local church. That's why Paul writes letters to definable geographical churches. This is not the invention of man. This is the invention of God. God ordained this. And so God's people dwelling in God's place, that is the church. Yes, if you want to be a faithful Christian, growing in your faith, then your commitment to a a body of believers will be necessary and then enjoying God's rule and blessing. God's people in God's place enjoying His rule and blessing. We like that word blessing, right? God bless them. What do we mean? We talked about this last week, right? Because God created man in His own image, and then He blessed them. 
Well, I think what we said last week applies here. So what did that mean? Well, what was God's blessing to His people? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Exercise dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every creeping thing that that moves upon the earth. This was God's blessing. And, And so God's people, those who believe on the name of Christ, dwelling in God's place today, faithful in the body of believers that God died to, Jesus died to establish, enjoying God's rule and His blessing that has never changed. Believer, follower of Christ, God's blessing to you is the same as it was when He created. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it and have dominion Exercise authority on not your power, not your personality, but on the basis of the gospel that God has granted to us. Luke concludes verses 4 and 5, while saying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. The promise was the coming of the Spirit. I can imagine that the the apostles, they they were somewhat probably confused about what exactly that was all going to mean. They didn't have a systematic theology book to go back and say, let's see what that, how we divide that up in these little neat little categories so we can pass it on. But they believed. And they were waiting for the promise of the Father, which he said, and, and this was the promise, John baptized with water, but you... We'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Luke said it this way in his gospel. He is telling the narrative of John's ministry, and he says in chapter 3, verse 16, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That just sounds good, right? Now, the way I want to conclude this morning might not be the best way because my point, my purpose here is not to distinguish disagreements about certain theologies because there may be disagreement here, but hopefully I'll still be able to make my point. When we read in Revelation chapter 11, we read a story about some witnesses. It says, this, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Now, I know this is a whole nother sermon. That's not my point, but I want to make a point out of this. As many of you know, my, my view of the book of Revelation, which, again, there's just so some of you new people know, there's not agreement on our positions on eschatology, even in this church, and it's okay. Um, I believe that it, this, the book of Revelation entails the entirety of uh, the past, present, and the future moving to the future. I don't think it's all future. And when I read Revelation 11, I believe that the two witnesses are representative of the church. And I say so because of where it's pulled from, Zechariah chapter 4. Now, I all that understood, whether you agree or not, here's the point. If I'm right, I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Why do I think they're the church? Because they're the olive trees and the lampstands. Lampstands and revelations are pointed out to be the church. 
But he's drawing this from a passage out of Zechariah that's talking about Joshua and Zerubbabel. as these two individuals, historical and real, but using them uh, to portray something significant that at that time in Zechariah was probably like a mystery in a huge way. But if this is the ministry of the church during the age of the church here on earth until Christ comes and consummates all things, the Bible says, and if anyone would harm them, fire pours out of the mouth. When I read that, I immediately am taken back to the passage I just read that Christ would we'd be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so I would then, if that's the case, I would then understand that what probably is meant by John in Revelation in, in representative terms is that, that the power of the witness on this earth is the Spirit of God. That our protection, our offensive weapon would be by the power of the Spirit. Now I take you to Zechariah 4 to support that position. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And he said, I said, I see and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it. With seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it. One on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked to me, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? Come on. Aren't you smart? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Now, again, you can go home and think through this and debate me. But if I'm right, The two witnesses in Revelation 11 are a story of the entirety of the church's operation on earth until seeming death and then ultimate victory. And that they have the power to to punish their enemies with fire. And it's being drawn from Zechariah, mentioning two olive trees and lampstands. And this is what it means. Verse 6, not by might nor by power. But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Agree or disagree doesn't matter. It doesn't change Luke's point here. God was continuing his work in this world at the ascension of Jesus Christ, our Savior, after he completed what was necessary for people like us to be reconciled to God. And through the apostles' teaching, as the foundation, establishing the the church, which is not a building, it is a people gathered, but in particular places, relating to one another with purpose and mission, that through that, infused with, that may not be the best word, but in promise the power of the Spirit on all of them, that through this means, God would accomplish everything, everything that He purposed to accomplish. Whether it looks like it in the moment or not, it would be so. And the book of Acts makes that case. In spite of, because of, whatever circumstances, God established His people and proclaimed the kingdom of God. And the book of Acts ends, obviously, with another, it's still going, point. And here we are today. We continue that very thing on the very same basis. We are witnesses of 
God's glory. Because we have experienced the grace of God. Believer, our lives have been changed regardless of what the circumstances are around that. We have been given new life, brought from death unto life, not by any merit of our own or anything that we thought or did, but because of the gracious work and power of God on the basis of the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone. And so now we, not in full and not always doing everything right or well, but because we have seen God's glory in His grace, we are witnesses to that. And so we seek to carry that out and proclaim that in this world. But we don't do it by our strength or by our intelligence or our personality, though it may appear that way with some. We do it by the power of the Spirit that God has given us. And that's good news. Because we could go back and see Peter and Paul and John. Sometimes they did good things. Sometimes they did bad things. Sometimes they made good decisions. Sometimes they made bad decisions. But guess what? didn't change God's power, didn't change God's work. And so we can go forward knowing that everything that Jesus began to do continues today. And it does so not on the basis of how much we've learned or what particular position we take on eschatology, but because of the Spirit at work in us. Not because we have it all right, or we're the best people, or have the best personalities, but because we have the Spirit of God. And we have that not on our basis, but on the basis of the promise of the Father. And for that, there is hope. There's always hope for each one of us individually, for us corporately as the body of Christ, and for the church universal. In spite of what we might think is coming down the pike in our country, it doesn't matter. Read the book of Acts. God's still working by the power of His Spirit, and He will accomplish all His holy purposes, no matter what. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness and Your grace. Thank You for the promise that You have left with us, the power of the Spirit at work in us, not on the basis of our intelligence, not on the basis of our personality or our prestige or our morality, while we pursue holiness and righteousness in all our faults and failures, you are accomplishing your purpose through the Spirit that you have left to us. I pray, Lord, that we would pursue being faithful witnesses in this world, regardless of the circumstances. And may we be encouraged by the stories that you have recorded for us to remind us of this very truth over and over again that it's not up to us. It's up to you accomplishing all your purposes. But we pray, Lord, that we would be faithful, that we would pursue your glory, that we would pursue righteousness, that we would pursue good. But regardless of how well we do that, we are grateful that you have guaranteed the outcome. But Father, in the here and now, in our perspective, we pray, Lord, that we would be the recipients of the fruit of the labor, that we would see your, your, the power of your Spirit at work in the hearts, transforming lives, raising the dead to life, 
to believe on Christ. Growing believers in sanctification and holiness and righteousness. Deepening our love and passion for the gospel and strengthening our faith. We pray that you would allow us to experience and see those things. But even if not, may we be found faithful. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.